Hello and welcome to the Young Conservative Podcast. My name is Hudson Havenhill. Today's episode is about voting. There is no set, linear, unified history to American voting. Throughout most of our country's history, who could vote was determined by the states, leaving a disarray of rights that people were given. Many qualifications were required across the entire Union, including gender, race, class, and religion, among others. To start with voting requirements based on gender, Yes, it was generally true that women were barred from voting in the majority of U.S. states, but it was not without exceptions. For instance, in Wyoming, back when it was a territory, women were allowed to vote after 1869 with no property rights. A year later, women were allowed to serve on juries. Wyoming territory actually was greatly pressured to restrict women's voting rights in order to become a state, but the state didn't budge, and Wyoming was admitted as the equality state. Colorado also allowed women to vote before the 19th Amendment in the year 1893 and onwards, and actually had the first elected female legislatures. Utah was another state that allowed women's suffrage, although it actually was stopped by the federal government when Utah was becoming a state. However, Utah overturned it and women were allowed to vote again. Idaho was the final state to allow women's voting rights and allowed women's suffrage in 1896. Moving on to race we see a much different picture in states allowing blacks to vote. In the 1820s, New York State allowed property-owning free black men to vote, although they did drop the property requirement for white men. Many states actually dropped the right of black men to vote before the Civil War, such as Pennsylvania and New Jersey. In 1870, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution allowed all male citizens the right to vote. This is obviously restricted to poor citizens, most harshly towards poor black citizens, with the presence of literary tests and poll taxes. These were eliminated with the passage of the 1964 Voting Rights Act during the civil rights protests. Religious discrimination also took place in many states across the Union. In 1776, the state of Delaware stated that only Christians could vote, repealing that rule in 1796. In 1778, the Constitution of South Carolina banned anyone except Protestants from voting. This also matched the state of Georgia, whose 1777 constitution stated that only Protestants could vote. In the 1787 ratification of the U.S. Constitution, Article 6 stated that no religious tests were to be given to federal officials, largely discouraging any statewide discrimination, although it took until 1828 for Jewish Americans to be able to serve in the state of Maryland, since they didn't recognize the existence of an afterlife. As is evident from the history, Americans' right to vote is no simple story, and throughout the 240 years this great nation has existed, more and more people are gaining access to a ballot box. And so now here we are, 240 years since our country's inception, and with a much different picture of what voting rights look like. So, the central question to voting rights isn't so much, um, you hear, if, if you say voting rights a lot of the time, you know, in, in today's political atmosphere, a lot of it comes to President Donald Trump and his cause of voter fraud, which we will cover later, um, most definitely, because it's you know kind of a pertinent issue in today's narrative. But a lot of the things you hear about voting right now is not so much should people be allowed to vote, but it's that you know people are being barred from voting, and so we need to get more people to vote. And I think this kind of gets at what the central issue is, but I think the most central question to voting is not who should be allowed and whatnot, but is it a right or privilege? Is voting a right or a privilege? Now, I think the automatic answer would be voting, of course, is a right. I mean, 
you know, I have the right to life, I have the right to self-defense, I have the right to, you know, a fair trial, I have the right to voting. Why wouldn't I? But if you look in the Constitution, it actually doesn't guarantee it. Now, this could be because it's so central to a little R republic that, you know, I mean, they didn't even have to add it. Of course, everyone should have the right to vote. But they didn't. Um, as you know, as in the history that I went through before, you know, a lot of discrimination took place on state by state bases. And it's kind of a touchy subject because if someone says, you know, if I were to come out in public and say voting is a privilege, a lot of people would come back to me and say, you know, like, well, then, you know, the final say is just up to you or just some bureaucrat who gets to vote. That's not fair because, you know, just because someone who, you know, is dirt poor can't, you know, afford a poll tax doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to vote. I mean, we overthrew that in 1964 and 1965. That was the whole civil rights movement. I would most definitely agree with you. But I, I think it's important to kind of have this discussion about whether or not voting is a right or a privilege. And I think Gavin McInnes, in a conversation he's having with Ann Coulter on his podcast, and, you know, regardless your thoughts of Ann Coulter, she's, you know, kind of a provocateur. Um, she's a lot outspoken, a lot outspoken. Um, but they both hit on a, on a point about whether or not it's a right or a privilege. And if, I, if I'm uh, remembering this correctly, which I think I am, Ann Coulter stated that she thought, or her, if I remember correctly, her father thought that only people who paid taxes should be allowed to vote. And then Gavin made the equivalent uh, metaphor in that if you, a, you know, a homeless person wouldn't be allowed to walk into a restaurant and say, hey, you should serve steak here because the homeless person's never going to pitch in and buy something at the restaurant. So why should they get a say? While I see the merits of this metaphor, and I think it holds some truth, I think it's only a half-truth. And the reason is this. It's looking at it from a free market perspective. It's saying that paying taxes is one way of, of aiding a country. And it's, remember back to the famous quote, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It's almost rephrasing that in the sense that one of my friends actually kind of rephrased it and just replaced, you know, country with government and said, that's what we're at right now. It's, you know, not what you can do for, not what, what your government can do for you, but what you can do for your government. And I think that is almost the sentiment that's being expressed. You know, if you can't pitch into your government, why is your government paying you? But the whole purpose of a government is to help you no matter what, because that means your rights are being violated. So I think the the restaurant metaphor doesn't really work because it's applying a free market so, um, solution and situation to a non-free market you know, framework. The government is not the free market. That's the purpose of the government. If the government was operating like a free market, then it would be anarcho-capitalism, which is a totally different topic. And we can talk about that in another episode for sure. So I think that the view of if you pay taxes, the only way you should be able to vote is if you pay taxes. It really comes, it, it kind of rubs people the wrong way for the right reasons. And I, and I think, you know, those reasons are, are valid. I don't think there should be a money requirement because we all know there's different ways of helping your country. You could have somebody who is very charitable with their time, raises two great kids, raises a son and a daughter who become very successful. But while they were raising them, they were dirt poor, couldn't afford to pay taxes didn't pay taxes because, you know, they didn't earn enough to pay taxes, but they were contributing to society. They didn't, you know, mooch off of the welfare state or any of this stuff. But, you know, should they not be allowed to vote? 
is the question. I don't know if this is happening. You know, I don't know if you have people like that. I guess you do. You know, 350 million people, give or take, in our country. You know, I, I think there are certainly people like that. And I don't think you should bar them from voting. I think we should structure our voting system similar to how we structure our justice system in the sense that I would rather, you know, the justice system would rather have nine guilty men walk free than put one innocent man behind bars. And I think it works the same with the voting. Sure, there could be nine people who mooch off of society and mooch off the government and don't contribute anything and get the right to vote. But if we limit them, then you're also going to limit that one person who really does and who is dirt poor and doesn't pay taxes but can't vote. So I don't, I don't like that idea of saying, uh, if you don't pay taxes, you shouldn't be able to vote. Just come on, you gotta, you gotta contribute, because I think there are different ways of contributing, and that takes a very black or white view of contribution. And I think it glorifies taxation in a way that, you know, conservatives shouldn't, because conservatives, you know, we're not anarcho-capitalists, we're not hardcore libertarians. Taxation is not theft, obviously, or if it is, you know, it's very justifiable theft. Um, taxation is necessary. And government is necessary. And even if you don't give, you know, if, if you're going to say that the only way you can help your government, the only way you can earn the, you know, the right or the privilege to vote is to give money, I think, then why wouldn't the left think of all Republicans as greedy businessmen, you know? It just, it gives that impression. So if, if, if we're going to say that voting is a right, let's just, you know, in this universe, you know, voting is a right, let's just hypothetically say that. Is that right afforded to everybody? You know, if if I'm in jail for murder, should I be able to vote? Do I lose my right? I've had a fair trial. I've had all of the things in the you know the Fifth Amendment have taken place, and I was found guilty of murder. I'm a felon. Should I be allowed to vote? This is a very this is a big question in Florida, especially because Florida has a lot of felon has a lot of felons in the population. So the the statistics I could pull up just from a quick Google search were. Um, there are about 3.9 million people, or about 2% of the pop total population of America, is considered to be felons. Not in jail, but, you know, felons. And they are mostly, if I remember correctly, they are barred from voting. It you know, State laws vary on who can vote. So let's say, you know, let's just say that all of them can vote just for simplicity's sake. So should they be allowed to vote? Should someone who committed a crime and violated somebody else's rights be allowed to vote? So... I think you can actually think of this in the same principle. It's the same principle as the death penalty, uh, and I'll explain why. So the basic reason why people support the death penalty is that if you have violated somebody else's rights so severely, you're, you've given up your rights. Your rights are not something that can be you know, preserved if you go around violating other people's because you don't have the right to kill somebody. You have the right to be free. But not, and so do they. So you don't have the right to take their freedom away. So if if you're gonna say that, you know, I, I know a lot of conservatives support the death penalty. So I think if you support the death penalty, you should also support not allowing felons to vote. And if you support not letting felons voting, I think you should support the death penalty because I think that they they operate on the same principle and they operate on the same moral ground. Sure, one might be a little bit more extreme, obviously, you know. Take, but if if we view voting as a right. Life is a right as much as voting is a right, as much as freedom of speech is a right. There's no such thing as a right that trumps other rights. That's this, you know, central argument of abortion, basically. You know, like, the, the, you know, two people have equal rights. They don't, one right doesn't trump the other. So the, the question with felons is really, is it okay 
to take someone's rights away. Can humanity do that if rights are given by the creator, the higher power, whatever that may be, natural law, God, you know, who knows? If those rights are given to human beings and they're inalienable, can human beings take them away? Can human beings become the moral arbiter? And that's a scary question. It is. Because let's take it to its logical extreme. If all of a sudden human beings can take away rights because of human reasons, what's to stop a government in 50 years, 60 years? Say there's a Supreme Court decision that says felons should not be allowed to vote because they violated somebody else's rights. Who defines that? Who's the final say? If we keep going in the direction we're going, you know, I talked about the Supreme Court last episode. Will the Supreme Court get to decide who gets to vote? Will they be able to limit people from voting? I don't think that's right. I don't. So that's definitely a um, a central question to be asked. And it's it's one that it needs to be talked about because people say, oh, felons should be allowed to vote or shouldn't be allowed to vote, but they don't get to the actual principle. They don't get to the the central question. Is it a right or is it a privilege? And if it is a right, can that right be taken away by other people? Because that kind of goes against all of what rights are. And we can pretend to know the will of whatever creator, natural law, God, whatever you believe in. We can pretend to know that. But is it okay to be the final say on who gets to enjoy their rights? Now, someone who is fairly mainstream conservative would say that it's not humans deciding, you know, it's already been decided. Rights operate in the way of what you can't do. So I can't kill you. I can't punch you. I can't assault you. I can't you know, defraud you, I can't do any of these things, because you have freedom to live and do what you want, and so do I. So we can't interfere with each other's rights to do that. And if you get in the way of somebody else, you're violating their rights. Therefore, you have given up. It's, you know, the social contract, if you want to talk in Hobbesian language. It's the social contract, you broke it by violating rights. And by breaking the social contract, you are now not part of society, wherever that contract comes from. But you broke it, and now you're no longer part of society, and so society gets to treat you however they want. But not in a collectivist, you know, communistic way, not like that, but it's in it's more of a, you know, you were told the rules, you broke the rules. You don't get to enjoy those privileges anymore. Because when it boils down to it, is... You know, freedom of speech, is it a right? Who gives it? If it's, if God, let's say God gives it. If God gives you the, you know, freedom, God gives you the right to freedom, and you violate that right, what, are we going to have to wait for you to die? Will God smite you out of this, you know, out of existence? I don't know. Is that something that we just have to wait for? Because then, you know, what's the point of police? You kind of get into dangerous territory when you start kind of thinking about it. So it's an it's an interesting question. And, you know, should felons be allowed to vote? It's really more complicated than people give it credit for. It's not, you know, much, you know who cares? 3.9 million people, 2% of the population, that's nothing. But it's that 2% of the population represents a much larger principle that isn't being talked about as much as it should be, in my opinion. So I, I don't really have much to say on that anymore. I would just, I would just leave with the thought that you know, not really to take an opinion because I don't, I haven't heard all the sides and I don't think there's been enough discussion as in 
that I've been able to find at least. But it really comes down to is the social contract something that can be voided? And if it can be voided, does that give society the right to punish you for it, to take you out of society? Or is that up to God or is that up to something else that we don't know? You know, who, who's, the, who's the hammer? And I know the anarcho-capitalists uh, anarcho would argue that the government, because the government has the monopoly on force, that is dangerous. And I actually see that viewpoint. That's why we have the Second Amendment, you know, that the government does not have the monopoly on force. Human beings, or citizens do, as well as government. But if we're going to give the government the monopoly on rights, it's a dangerous game. It's a very dangerous game. If the government is suddenly allowed to say, you know, the population X, you guys don't get to vote. For whatever reason. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really have too much more to say on that. That's pretty much... It's pretty much my thoughts, and I think I think it's a central question that needs to be asked. So, kind of to bring this into, because the felons was most definitely a current issue, you know, especially in Florida and swing and other swing states like Ohio and whatnot. It was a, it was a big issue about you know will felons swing the election? To my knowledge, I don't think they did. I think Florida won by a large enough margin, if I remember correctly, that it, you know felons didn't really, you know, felons didn't get Donald Trump in the office in office. But we hear a lot from at least Donald Trump, from at least President Donald Trump and his you know, people around him that voter fraud was an issue. And we hear from the left that it's not true. We hear from a lot of people on the right that it's not true. And really the only people saying that it's an issue are Trump, Trump's people and him. And they keep saying, oh, it's rampant. You know, what are the numbers? Like three million people, you know, three million illegal people voted. And, uh, you know, that's almost as many felons are in, are in America voted. And they all voted for Hillary. And, you know, it's horrible. And it's wrong. And it's absolutely the worst. But I, I haven't seen a conclusive enough, study, a conclusive enough study to prove that. Um, I was just reading some research on it. Uh, you know, to take the, on the left side, you have the, the, this... Um, group called the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, it's part of New York University School of Law, and they have research on voter fraud, and their li their upper limit is 0.0025% voter fraud, you know, across the country nationally, which is 875,000 people around, probably around a million people, actually. And their low estimate is 0.0003%, which is around, you know, 100,000, 120,000 people. So they say that's very small, and it is, you know, 0.0025% is very small, but still, 875,000 people, it's, it's a lot of people, it's quite a bit of people, and, you know, is that concerning enough? Is that, because that was just nationally, could that happen, you know, could that affect a governor's election? Most certainly. Could that affect a local election? Most certainly. And so it, we don't, we don't really know if that is severe enough, you know, that's 17, around 17,000, 18,000 votes per state, which could definitely swing local elections, could definitely swing House representatives' elections. And so I don't think they, they dismiss it because nationally it wouldn't make a difference. Now, National Review actually had an article uh, called Voter Fraud, We've Got Proof It's Easy. 
which they say, I'll just read out the, um, the paragraph. Uh, but New York City's watchdog Department of, in- of Investigations has just provided the latest evidence of how easy it is to commit voter fraud that is almost undetectable. DOI undercover agents showed up at 63 polling places last fall and pretended to be voters who should have been turned away by election officials. The agents assumed the names of individuals who had died or moved out of town or who were sitting in jail. In 61 instances, or 97% of the time, the testers were allowed to vote. Those who did vote cast only a write-in vote for a, you know, in quote, John test, so as not to affect the outcome of any contest. DOI published its findings two weeks ago in a searing 70-page report accusing the city's Board of Elections of incompetence, waste, nepotism, and lax procedures. So, that is pretty stunning. You know, if if 97% of people, of undercover agents from, you know, the Department of Investigations by New York City, so an official, um, an official group, an official government group, you know, if they are allowed to vote for people who are dead or have moved out or in jail who can't vote, that's that's insane. And sure, you know, Brennan um, Brennan Institute says, or uh, Brennan, what is it, uh, Brennan Center for Justice says. That you know, it's only oh, it's only you know eight hundred seventy-five thousand people nationally is the upper limit, but if in New York City, New York City is a, you know a gigantic uh, city, it's if if it were down to popular vote, New York City would be the second, you know, largest target of politicians. You know, L.A. County being um, the first, so if it's pretty stunning, you know, if they were allowed to vote. And I actually was an election judge, um, first time doing it for this, you know, for the presidential election in Illinois. And I was actually a voter services judge, which means that I handle all the weird stuff. So they couldn't find you or if your signature didn't match or if you didn't have enough, you know, if you wanted to register, I would basically take care of you and make sure you got a ballot in your hands. Um, and I can't conclusively say, obviously, you know, voter fraud happened and all this stuff, but there were definitely people and I, it was definitely very easy. I don't want to say that I know of people who, you know, committed voter fraud because I don't, I don't, I mean, I wasn't in a position to make that. I'm not now, but it is very easy to do it. You, you sign a piece of paper and I did not have nearly as much, as many people come to me because there's a lot more people who are registered to vote than are not registered to vote, you know. And so when I was sitting watching the people, you know, the normal election judges judging people's signatures, what what you do is you have to get, you know, you, you're at the laptop and you look at the signature and then you have somebody else come over, someone, you know, for my, for us, who's just a lady who's walking back and forth. Uh, validating signatures and you both of you would look at it and say is this legitimate or is it not yes or no and you know someone would write their last initial and then say oh you didn't write your last initial can you do that on this slip of paper and they would you know basically print out a little ballot receipt um and that's the verification no id no address no nothing you'd say your name they'd find you if they found you you'd verify your address and um 
you'd sign, which it's not, you know, it's not easy to bypass, but someone motivated enough to do it, oh, they could totally do it. They totally could. Um, it would it would not be hard at all, I don't think. And I for and for registering to vote, if I remember correctly, you need two forms of ID, one with an address and your name, and then another with your name, and it has to be you know like credit card, ID, FOID card, bank statement, mail, something like that. And I had a few people come in, you know, who just didn't have anything. I had one person come in with this, you know, like a legitimately a scrap of paper with their address written on it. And they handed it to me like, yep, there you go, there's my address. And I kind of was like, no, you can't do that. So sent it back. They came back three times, finally brought it. Okay, I was a little sketchy. He ended up having the stuff he needed. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't want to say that he was fraudulent. I don't, I don't think he was. I think he was just a little confused and, um, just wasn't used to it, but I know firsthand that it, it probably, you know, it probably would have been easy. Probably would have. I don't, I don't know any people who voted fraudulently. No reason, like I said, no reason to think so. I'm not saying that Illinois has a voting fraud problem at all. I'm not saying that. And I think that the voting staff for my county were very professional. Most definitely not lazy bureaucrats. Very professional, very helpful, very qualified. Training was very good, you know, very, very, very impressive, especially for local government. Um, technology was good. We had all the resources we needed, so no issue there. But I don't think a signature is enough. That's all you have to do. You just say your name. There's no ID. There's no picture that comes up. And it's, it gets a little, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, you know, voter ID. That's a different, um, pretty much podcast entirely. There's so much to talk about, um, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's too unreasonable, and I don't think it's impossible to commit voter fraud. I don't. I think it would it would be fairly easy if you're motivated. And so when people say, you know, oh Donald Trump, he wants to, you know, uh, he wants to have an investigation of voter fraud. I mean, what are you afraid of? If you don't think there's any voter fraud, you should be encouraging an investigation, shouldn't you? I mean, after all, if there isn't any voter fraud, an investigation will prove that. And if there is voter fraud, there is an investigation, shouldn't we know about it? Shouldn't that be something that the public should be aware of? Shouldn't that be federally investigated if there is voter fraud? I mean, I don't know. I have no no idea how much voter fraud there are. I don't think anyone actually does. No one has the resources of the federal government. So, you know, hey, I'm I'm not against it. And if it turns out that it's nothing, okay, well, at least we know. And the left has something to say, and if they're correct, I'll support them all the way, and I'll be right. He was wrong to say that, but you know what? We found the truth. I don't, I don't think there should be any resistance to finding truth. I don't know why People on both sides are saying that, you know, it's either this or it's that. We don't know. We don't know if there is voter fraud. But I don't understand why an investigation would be bad. Obviously, if it targeted specific races, you know, people are saying it would. But that's not good. That's obviously not. But if it 
targeted everybody and it said let's look at all types of counties let's look at all types of precincts let's see how much how, how many uh false ballots there were no problem um yeah and it's it's not an issue i don't really see an issue with having an investigation because it'll just it'll pursue the truth there isn't any fine no one will say anything there is well we gotta no, we got to talk about it. We got to have that debate in the in the public in the public sphere. And so I think part of it is you know part of the resistance to the investigation. I think is this resistance to everything Donald Trump is doing. It's a different video entirely. You know, people like Ben Shapiro cover this almost every day. Is the kind of the hyperness of you know the the irrational fear people have. So I think I think that is a large part. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, my, my thoughts on this really are just, what's the resistance? What's the big deal? I mean, if National Review is right, and if this, uh, you know, Department of, of Investigations for New York City is right, 97% of people weren't turned away, it's concerning. It is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really have too much else to say, honestly. So, I think I think we've covered pretty much everything I you know, we set out to cover. Um, the main takeaway should just be we need a conversation about whether it's a right or a privilege. We need a conversation about voter fraud. We need an investigation, in my opinion. Um, and we need to understand that it, it's not so black and white in terms of who could vote when. The common narrative is that only white men were allowed to vote only. It just isn't true. It's just not. It's largely true. And there are definite exceptions to the rule. I think you know that's important to realize, and I think it's important to realize that American history is much more diverse than a lot of people give it credit for, especially in voting rights. It's fascinating. Actually, I was doing a lot of reading about it. It's very interesting. Um, so yeah, I think that concludes our episode. Um, quick little announcement, I guess, if you want to call it that. We are going to have this segment called a uh, quick talk, which is. You know, these are longer episodes, 30, 40 minutes long. And Quick Talk is going to be much shorter, at least I'm predicting it to be. And it's going to be, most likely it's going to be with two other people. Um, two fellow conservatives at my high school uh, who help write and co-produce the podcast. And our first one will be Quick Talk episode one, the Trump travel ban. So we'll basically be going through about... Um, our thoughts on it. I know it's a little late, um, but still, I, I would consider it still news. Um, you know, with the what role the president has in stopping immigration, how you know was the principle behind it? Is it constitutional? What's the future of the ban? You know, kind of, you know, misinformation about it, truths about it, and whatnot. So we're gonna kind of go into um, the issues surrounding it and the news surrounding it, and it'll kind of be. Um, it won't be as long as the typical podcasts are going to be because these are more about, you know, ideas and more um, principles rather than individual events. Um, so the quick talks will most likely be, you know, current events, faster conversation, uh, conversations between me and the two other um, people on, uh, David and Dylan, other names. Um, and 
yeah, well, so we'll see how that goes. If we like it, we'll continue doing it. And um, we're definitely going to continue doing these longer podcasts. I think next episode is going to be um, kind of just about, I mean, I don't even know, honestly. I've got a few ideas bouncing around in my head about what it could be. It'll probably come out, you know, two weeks, two and a half weeks um, is when it'll probably come out. And I don't know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking we do something a little bit heavy. Um, I think a good topic will be to cover institutional everything, you know, institutional sexism, institutional racism, institutional classism, institutionalism, whatever it is. I think we need to dissect kind of what that means. We have to dissect what it means before we get into the individual, you know, racism, sexism, classism, all of these things, um, all of these isms and all these principles. We have to dissect what does institutional X mean before we do it. So I think that'll probably be the next podcast about what does institutional blank mean? Um, kind of approaching it from a conservative standpoint, you know, kind of illustrating why the, the left arguments about it and uh, just kind of getting into you know the 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 details of kind of what 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 do you, what should you think when you hear institutional blank and what does it mean what are the logical extremes or the principles behind it and kind of how to approach a conversation about it um that's not set in stone it could change for all i know uh, depending on what comes up what i think about you know what i, what I read what i find um, but right now i think institutional call it institutional blank you know it'll be episode three uh, but anyway this was episode two of the young conservative podcast about voting uh, my name is hudson havenel and i will see you in the next episode <laughs>